Hello, and welcome to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. I'm Anna Knudsen. And I'm Ethan Anthony. And for this two-part episode, we had the pleasure of speaking to Peter Wozniak and Daniel Lachance about two death row cases relevant to law and religion. In this first episode of two, we want to talk about prisoners on death row and the R-I-G-H-T, right to death. The right, if there is one, for death row inmates to have a say in deciding the way in which they die. For this, we're going to be looking at the case of Michael Nance, a death row inmate who requested death by firing squad in the state of Georgia. By current law, death row inmates are allowed to contest the means of execution, which currently is by lethal injection. But to do so, they have to come up with the alternative means of execution themselves. We'll be getting into relevant cases like Glossop v. Gross, how retributive justice unfolds in American prisons, and discussing the ethics of what happens when the burden falls on the prisoner to decide the way they die. In our second episode, we're going to talk about the R.I.T.E. right to death, the religious rites and rituals that accompany death made particularly salient in death row cases. For this, we'll be looking at the case of Ramirez v. Collier. In this case, John Ramirez, a Texas death row inmate, requested that he be permitted to have his pasture present at his execution and to pray over him and lay hands on him. But Texas denied the request and the case went to the Supreme Court. The question became whether Texas' denial represented a violation of the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment and a violation of our lupa. In this interview, we asked the question, what rights do religious inmates have on death row? You're listening to Interactions and this is the right to death. Peter Wozniak is the owner and founder of Wozniak Law LLC, which is a trial-based law firm serving the metro Atlanta area. Wozniak is a graduate of Emory University School of Law and Candler School of Theology, where he received the Savage Levy Scholarship in Law and Religion. This is our interview with Peter Wozniak. I wanted to start, um, I was speaking with Daniel Lachance. I don't know if you know him, he's an Emory University law and history professor here. And he was talking about how the death penalty um, claims that we're seeing now are about having a level of dignity restored to the prisoners or the inmates on death row rather than challenging the death itself. And I thought that that was pretty telling given um, Ramirez v. Collier, um, the case that we're talking about today, because he isn't requesting to not be executed, right? He's requesting how he's being executed. He's requesting like a religious um, right. And so I was wondering if you could speak to us about Ramirez's request here. Um, what is it that he's requesting? And what, what, are, what are the stakes to his claim? You know, like what were the stakes, I would say? Yeah. So as y'all know, the, the court recently ruled on this issue and Ramirez v. Collier yeah. and they found that Ramirez was likely to succeed on his claim under our lupa. Right. Um, and basically that um, he, they found that he had a sincere religious um, belief or claim to have physical touch that is laying on of hands and vocal prayer during his execution in the execution chamber. And that because he had this sincere belief um, that Texas denying him um, the right to those things substantially um, burdened his um, 
religious free exercise um, under the Arlupa statute. And um, additionally, you know, they could have denied this right, but they had to find, they had to show that there was um, no le uh, least or less restrictive alternative that they could have offered. And the court found that just a, a general blanket uh, bar to his claims um, was not sufficient. And essentially they found that he could have, um, or rather that the state could have um, accommodated his requests in various ways that would have still, on the one hand, recognized or validated Texas's um, um, compelling government interest, which the court found that there was a compelling government interest, right. while also protecting uh, Mr. Ramirez's sincere religious belief or sincere religious claim. This sounds like Arlupa. Can you tell me a little bit about how that functions here? Yeah, so Arlupa is an acronym for the Religious Land Use and Inst uh, Institutionalized Persons Act. Um, and essentially, it was passed just over about 20 years ago, signed into law by President Clinton. Um, and essentially, it grants, among other things, um, people who are institutionalized, um, prisoners, essentially a religious freedom claim um, by statute and um, puts a, a, and once a, an individual can um, show that they have a sincere religious uh, belief or claim that's being burdened, the burden then shifts to the state or the institution um, to show that there's no uh, less restrictive alternative right. um, and to go ahead and accommodate the religious pra practice in question. I remember we were speaking about this last week. Um, the The fact that the burden of the claim was on Ramirez and not on the state. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So the court mentioned that Texas did not present um, a least or a less restrictive alternative, um, and it suggested that it was actually Ramirez's burden right. um, to suggest the less, like to come up with the least restrictive alternative. Right. Um, and the court said that that gets the analysis um, backwards, basically. That sounds a bit out of left field to me, where it's like, why would it be Ramirez's job to come up with the less restrictive means? Like, doesn't that, that sounds like the state's job to me. Right. Yeah. And I think it, I think it certainly is <laughs> the, the state's job to um, accommodate um, prisoners, right? And to come up with a way that they can, in this case, carry out the, the execution um, and do it in a way that still um, protects their interests in an orderly um, and safe right. execution. And the su Supreme Court gave several examples of things that could be done to make sure that the, the execution goes forward, like in an orderly and safe fashion. Um, but instead of coming up with some solution like that. Um, Texas just, you know, borrowed all laying on of hands and all religious prayer. Um, one example that comes to mind is the court saying that maybe, uh, you know, he could have touched the uh, prisoner kind of on a different part of his body. Um, yeah, yeah. I remember the quote was something like, are we going to have to go through every single part of the body and decide which part is okay and which isn't? Like it got to this absurd capacity. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so for religious touch, you know, the court brought up um, allowing touch on a part of the body away from the IV lines 
yeah. such as a prisoner's lower leg, that they could require Ramirez to stand in a location that gives um, the medical team like a good view of the IV lines yeah, and to be able to watch um, problems and quickly respond and um, restrict the time period during which touching yeah. is permitted to min- minimize risk. Right. So the point um, here is that there were other ways that the state could have accommodated his claim and they weren't doing so. Is it clear why Texas wasn't doing so? Like, what was their like motive? Do you know the motive that they had for saying we're going just to just like point blank, not allow anybody to have any sort of religious um, person in the chamber? So in this case, they were going to allow them to be in the chamber. Right. Um, because the court had already ruled previously that, that basically you have to <laughs> allow a person, spiritual advisor, clergy member to be present in the chamber. But this case extended the question to whether laying on of hands, physical touch mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. audible prayer, um, could be allowed. Um, and, and I think a lot of these cases kind of have their genesis with, um, prohib- prohibiting minority religions Mm. um, uh, to be able to have their spiritual advisor present. If you look kind of back at the the line of cases, um, because essentially there's a long history in the country, and the court noted this, of spiritual advisors or clergy persons being present during executions, um, offering prayers, giving guidance, that type of a thing. Mm. Um, And then there were basically a string of cases. One of them was in um, Alabama. Yeah. Um, and another one was in Texas. The Alabama case uh, basically dealt with an Islamic individual who wanted his imam to be present. The court actually didn't intervene in that case. And that, mm. um, that individual, um, Dominic Reyes, was, um, I believe his name, was executed without being able to have his imam present. Uh, not long thereafter, in Texas, um, an individual um, who was Buddhist wanted his um, advisor be present. And it was in that case that the court intervened yeah. um, and said that basically <laughs> you can't allow you know Christians basically to have mm-hmm. um, their spiritual advisor to be present, but then not allow other religions like Buddhist um, people or um, Islamic people. Um, to have their spiritual advisor present. So that basically changed things. But then Texas's response was then to say, <laughs> all right, well, we're not going to allow any clergy people to be present yeah. during execution, which then the court responded again in, in a later case and said that, no, that actually that's not okay because there is a right to have your clergy person present. Mm-hmm. So that brings us up to Ramirez B. Collier, where... It wasn't in question whether uh, a person's spiritual advisor or clergy person could be present, but now to mm. this question of whether there could be audible prayer and religious touching um, yeah. or laying on of hands. So you do think that there's a pattern of discrimination in the way these cases are being decided? I think um, I, I think it's pretty clear in mm-hmm. um, these cases that there was. Uh, less of a desire to want to extend these kind of traditional rights to having a clergy person present right. to 
minority religions, right. Or, um, non-Christian religions. Yeah. Um, because historically, again, this is, <laughs> this is something that was very common. And even in the Ramirez case, um, and one, this is probably, I think one of the most compelling facts in the Ramirez case, it, and that wasn't disputed was mm-hmm. that Texas had a history of allowing clergy person in the chamber and allowing physical touch and audible <laughs> prayer. Right. And then all of a sudden they're, they're not allowing it. Um, right. And so it, this really kind of hurt Texas's claim mm-hmm. that they had no way of accommodating uh, Mr. Ramirez, Ramirez's religious you know, claim or request. Right. Because right, it's like a basic precedent. <laughs> yeah, like if they'd done it in the past and there hadn't yeah. been a problem, then why all of a sudden is this causing a problem? Um, and so I, I think that fact alone probably went quite a bit into the court's thinking. Um, on mm-hmm. the other hand, the lower courts didn't necessarily question Mr. Ramirez's sincerity mm-hmm. um, of his claim. That wasn't really in question. Okay. And that wasn't really the argument that Texas was going up against with a lot of vigor. However, just this Thomas and his dissent, he, he wasn't buying it. He just, <laughs> he saw, you know, Mr. Ramirez's claims as being, a, you know, an attempt to essentially um, game the system, right. which is in the oral argument, something that he was very concerned about. Um, and then that came out in his dissent um, that he thought that Ramirez was using religion mm-hmm. um, as a, as a tactic of delay. And his argument was that Mr. Ramirez had been trying to essentially delay the process since the very beginning that yeah. um, he, he absconded at the beginning when they finally tried him and convicted that, that convicted him that he's been, you know, fighting, taking us uh, taking responsibility essentially since the very I'm, beginning I'm curious about that dissent because how much does the sincerity of Ramirez's claim ultimately matter like I know when we talk about a faith practice it's all about your personal belief right but there's also the fact that maybe there is this constitutional right to having someone spiritual present in the chamber with you and so regardless of whether your your actual claim is sincere the next person down the line who's going to have their case decided on the precedent of Ramirez could be sincere regardless. So does the court have some sort of like responsibility to that future person, regardless of Ramirez's sincerity? Yeah, I think, I think it just goes into whether it it substantially burdens their Mm -hmm. free exercise of religion. Right. So if, if someone's claim isn't sincere at all, then it's hard to say that it's a substantial burden on their religious free exercise. But uh, on the other hand, if, if it's a, important, sincere religious belief that a person has, and it's being infringed by a state policy, Mm -hmm. um, then it's much easier to make out that it's substantially burdening burdening somebody's religious free exercise. That makes sense. Yeah. I think another one of my questions was like, what are the stakes for this decision, right? So Ramirez has been granted the right to have someone in the execution chamber, or they're going to decide in his favor. I think this might tie into the question of what future cases could come down the pipeline, right, that are going to be decided on this. What is the importance of this case, do you think, for like religious freedom claims, um, for just the Supreme Court in general? Like, what are the stakes? I think that's a, I think that's a good question. I, I think this case demonstrated that 
the court is probably likely to give the benefit of the of the doubt mm -hmm. to the religious claimant about their sincerity, right? Mm -hmm. The majority noted in, in its opinion that you know there probably were some reasons to doubt Mr. Ramirez's sincerity, mm -hmm. um, primarily because he had initially issued a request saying that he wasn't going to need religious touch or um, vocal prayer, but that he was just going to need his clergy person present. Um, and then he withdrew that request and then um, submitted another uh, one later. Um, the majority didn't think that that was um, a big enough problem to um, cast you know, doubt on his sincerity. Um, for Justice Thomas, it was <laughs> right. It was a big problem, um, and um, cast a lot of doubt on uh, on uh, Mr. Ramirez's sincerity. Yeah. Um, so, so to answer your general question, though, I think I think it, this opinion shows that the, the the court is going to take religious free exercise claims seriously. Mm -hmm. It's going to take our Lupa claims seriously, and it's going to put quite a bit of pressure on. Um, the state, in this case, Texas, right, from uh, or put pressure on them to um, come up with reasonable accommodations um, and not let the state put the burden for a least restrictive alternative on the prisoner, right? Right, right. But is going to put the burden on or keep the burden where it should be on um, the state or on um, the prison to come up with some kind of reasonable, mm. reasonable accommodation. So I think that's one of the takeaways that something like this is, is, is serious to the court. I think one of the kind of like unspoken facts in the background that, that um, um, probably helped persuade the court, mm -hmm. if I'm kind of speculating or venturing a guess, <laughs> is that, yeah, is, is that, that this historic practice, right? That, that this request of Ramirez isn't mm -hmm. some newfangled kind of off the wall thing that he wanted, right? Like, I mean, this practice of clergy presence at execution goes back to the founding and even before. Um, mm -hmm. And the Beckett Fund did an amicus brief kind of detailing that history. And um, the court uh, talked about this history in the opinion. Um, and I think it talked about this rich, rich history, right? Of having a um, clergy present. And I, and I, we may have talked about this in a prior conversation, but, um, you know, religion often comes into play in people's lives in moments where there's a lot of, of meaning yeah. or um, where really important things are happening, right? Like at birth, um, at marriage, um, at death. Yeah. Um, kind of these moments of, of, uh, I guess, threshold moments or moments mm -hmm. of moving from one uh, one place to another or, or moving on from one area in life to, to another area in life. And there's perhaps <laughs> no more important transition, um, right, from life, life to death. Right. And so to think that a person might have an interest in having a, a, a religious function at that time um, is totally understandable right right um and so i think that's part of the reason why the court was so uh sympathetic to this claim mm -hmm. and then the second piece is just that there were so many possible accommodations that <laughs> texas could have come up with 
and didn't right and didn't offer that I think it made it an easier case for the court to decide it you know with an 8-1 majority instead of like a closer 5-4 decision yeah um but I think Justice Thomas's dissent kind of shows that yeah there might have been some reasons to to doubt the sincerity of Mr. Ramirez's mm-hmm. claims which I think you know his point is is pretty well taken but to the majority that doubt wasn't enough yeah to to make them obviously side with uh, Justice Thomas in, in saying that, that his his claim shouldn't have been, uh, yeah. or that he wasn't likely to prevail on this claim. Right. I think relatedly, um, I was curious about, so what you were saying about like times of meaning and um, threshold spaces, I'm curious about like the sheer length of time that a prisoner spends on average on death row. I think the average was 17 years. Um, and since death row inmates spend so much time on death row, it seems like cases like Ramirez, like cases like Ramirez's are going to become maybe more common because these prisoners have a lot of time to adopt a faith practice and to like practice their faith. So I feel like these questions might be becoming more pressing because people are living like entire lifetimes on death row, it seems. And these moments of meaning become more and more common. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great point that that you bring up. I mean, a lot of these individuals, like you said, have been incarcerated for yeah. a very long time. Yeah, I think um, at least kind of in my own experience as a criminal defense attorney, people often seem to to find God or mm-hmm. to want to approach God or the divine in very stressful time yeah. in their lives. And it's hard to think of something more stressful, difficult, or traumatic than being incarcerated, right? So mm-hmm. um, I, yeah, I don't think it's surprising at all that you have prisoners who are um, bringing religious free exercise claims because, um, you know, I think they have a strong <laughs> incentive to um, approach the divine because they are in, in such a difficult place in their lives, um, yeah. removed from their families, removed from their communities, restricted in what they can do, um, restricted in who they can contact and how they can contact them, um, you know, being removed from being able to see their, um, children, yeah, uh, grow normally and um, be involved in, um, in their families and communities and otherwise. Um, and so, no, I think that's certainly something that would come up. And I think, you know, religious leaders in the past who have, undergone trials, right, or experience mm-hmm. with the criminal justice system. Um, you know, you have Martin Luther King um, being held, held in jail, and you have the uh, uh, letters, I believe, from the Birmingham jail, yeah. um, if I'm recalling those correctly. Um, in my own tradition, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, mm-hmm. commonly known as Mormons or the LDS faith. Some of the most inspiring texts in uh, arguably that Joseph Smith produced, he produced when he was, um, um, incarcerated in, mm. in Missouri. And then, you know, you think of Christianity generally in the trial of, uh, trial and execution of Jesus. So, yeah, I do think that kind of contact with the criminal justice system, incarceration, all those things can, uh, easily lead to or evoke religious sentiments and religious mm. feelings. Yeah, and provide a space right. for a prisoner to exercise autonomy or to 
want to make those kinds of choices or free exercise claims. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think this is kind of what we said earlier, but um, these cases such as Ramirez v. Collier um, are trying to determine whether a prisoner has a right to determine how they die, not whether they die. Um, and some of the other cases we're looking at for this episode um, have been the recent slew of firing squad cases where you're, again, trying to determine a right and how you die. Um, and I remember um, you've done some research on reasonable doubt. Um, and I was curious about firing squad executions um, and how that relates to your research on reasonable doubt. It'd be interesting to bring that up or just I remember it had to do with the morality um, of the jury like deciding, right. like, like who is the person responsible for deciding? Um, and how does that right. responsibility get played out in a legal setting? Yeah, so uh, I had read in my research um, a book by um, a professor at Yale, Professor Whitman. He's got a book on kind of the theological roots and the, the origins of, of reasonable doubt. And one of the kind of surprising and interesting ideas that he uncovers is that you know, reasonable doubt has this long kind of theological history. And he argues that the idea and concept of reasonable doubt was developed not to protect the accused, as mm -hmm. we would normally think, but actually to protect the conscience of the jurors um, and to be able to allow them to convict individuals um, accused of crimes and then I guess not feel the the same amount of moral weight um, and so one of the things that he talks about that is hard for a lot of modern folks to understand is just how much pressure um, medieval jurors felt with convicting mm. somebody they took really serious the biblical command to um, to judge not and they felt that if they judged incorrectly that their uh, eternal soul was in jeopardy mm. um, and that, um, you know, to put it more bluntly that they could go to hell if they falsely convicted yeah. somebody. So theologians um, developed this idea of reasonable doubt in order to kind of assuage or uh, calm the, the, the conscience of, of jurors. And I think that just kind of gets to the idea of, you know, how serious it is to condemn somebody, right, mm. um, to death or to convict somebody of a crime otherwise. And, you know, in our, in our system of the jury trial, it's sort of a collective conviction, right? Um, you know, the, the, uh, at least in Georgia, where I practice, the you know, uh, jury conviction requires uh, a unanimous verdict. Mm. Everybody's got to be uh, involved in it. And, yeah, I think that it, that kind of beckons to this this ancient idea with or idea of moral kind of guilt or mm -hmm. the, um, to provide jurors with with moral comfort because they were doing this terrible awesome act and mm -hmm. his call kind of at the end of the book is to revive this original meaning of reasonable doubt that you know jurors aren't just doing some kind of technical you know finding a fact um, mm -hmm. I guess they are in a certain sense but if according to Whitman the historical background of what they're doing <laughs> is um, something that carries a, a lot of moral weight. Is it possible that 
the move um, that some prisoners are making to request firing squad over lethal injection. I mean, lethal injection seems so aesthetic. It's so cosmetic. Um, you don't have to face the same moral decision because it, I mean, it just looks like a vaccine, you know, whereas the bloodiness of firing squad, I wonder if there's a connection there, um, whether the reasonable doubt standard might apply. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think there's a, a sense in which things have been sort of sanitized over time, mm -hmm. right? We have more distance from the kind of dirty work, if you will, of yeah. the, the criminal justice system um, than, than we used to have. I'm just thinking out loud in the community I live in, there was um, a move to put put the jail uh, right next to the courthouse, which was by a neighborhood. Mm. Um, and there was kind of a, like uh, a public outcry and a lot of signs went up. Um, there's some just down the street from me that say no, no jail in my neighborhood. Um, mm. um, and kind of an objection to having the jail nearby for safety concerns, prop right. perhaps property value and other things. But um, often our jails really are kind of out in the, no the middle of nowhere yeah. and individuals who, you know, are convicted of crimes or, you know, put in these facilities and are kind of far away from the dealings of, of everyday life. And a sense I've kind of had in my research in, you know, the, the middle ages, um, often these towns where jury trials would occur, they were small towns where everybody knew each other. Mm. And um, if you were convicting somebody, you were probably convicting your brother or your cousin wow. or somebody uh, pretty in, in, in close proximity to you. And as the juror, everyone knew who you were, right? And yeah, um, you had to live with people after the trial. And that isn't really the case for us as much anymore, maybe in mm. some really small towns, but just the sense in which we kind of live separate from and apart from the criminal justice system. And most people, unless they have a job in it, like as a mm. prison guard or as a judge or a police officer, or prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, aren't really going to deal with people incarcerated people on a right. on any kind of a regular basis there's an anonymity that risks seeming to make the decision impartial like it makes it seem impartial because of that distance right and it makes me think and, and i'm not, i've heard I, of this idea that um like in a firing squad not every single gun has a live bullet um yeah. I, have, I haven't looked that up perhaps y'all can confirm that i've heard mm -hmm. that that's the case and you know i've thought that you know, probably that way because people don't want to hold the moral guilt for actually doing yeah. the killing. Um, and yeah. I don't know if that's, if there's anything similar with the person who does, you know, the, the lethal injection. Um, I know there's but, a similar uh, circuit set up with the electric chair um, with the okay. pressing the button. I know that that's been, um, that's a historical use of electric chair to have that same moral, I don't know, but also I think, if I'm not mistaken, that lethal injection, there are some um, rules set up, I think, by the some association of doctors um, where it's like they don't want people who are trained um, in putting people under to have to actually kill someone. It's, it's going to go against like oh, maybe good, Hippocratic like, Oath. The Hippocratic Oath, yeah. right. So there's something there too. I'm not really fully aware of. Right. So, and that kind of leads into another area that I think we started to explore and mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about too deeply, but it kind of came out a little bit in our 
conversation is often people talk about, you know, various rights, um, right to life, or um, um, there's, there's been some discussion about, you know, people having a right to to death or a right to assisted suicide. You could potentially imagine um, maybe a (laughs) religious free exercise argument saying, in effect, uh, my religious beliefs don't believe that it's uh, correct uh, to for the state to put people to death, right? Mm. Um, I don't necessarily think that would <laughs> get a lot of traction, but if your religion has kind of a consistent life ethic, right, um, and that you know you don't believe that killing is is right under under any circumstances, um, you could imagine that a religious belief could, in that could also extend to the state not actually really having the the right to put people to death either. Um, Now the state is the state and is sovereign in some sense. Right. And can, uh, has that power, that sheer power to be able to do that. But, um, you know, you're asking this question about kind of what are the impacts of this case and Mm -hmm. where could, where could things go? I think more practically speaking, we may see, you know, additional religious, um, free exercise claims that that might come up in the the context of an execution chamber. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, so we just saw um, laying on of hands. We saw vocal prayer. I, I think that probably will, will cover quite a, quite a bit, but maybe, mm. you know, maybe a, like a, a religious anointing. Right. Mm. Um, in, in my tradition, um, sometimes there are, uh, religious anointings that are done for the healing of the sick, right? So like mm-hmm. use an oil um, on the head of an individual. Yeah. Um, that's just one example I could think of that. That wasn't necessarily covered um, in right. the Ramirez decision and maybe something like that um, might come up. I think we, we talked about uh, maybe somebody requesting a baptism or mm-hmm. a sprinkling, mm-hmm. right? Right before execution. Yeah. I don't know if that, if that would ever result. Um, but I think if someone did come up with one that was sincerely held um, and they really needed it uh, or felt that they needed it as, as required by their religion, um, the court might uh, take a hard look at something like that. Now, as I stated earlier, the tradition of something I think really helps. And in this case, and in this line of cases with Mm -hmm. the presence of clergy and prayer and laying on of hands, those are kind of entrenched traditional religious practices that are, uh, pretty well known. So some of these, you know, certain certain religious requests that are more uncommon or less traditional, uh, I don't know how, how sympathetic the court will be to those or not, but um, you could imagine using Ramirez de Collier as precedent, these individuals or, or certain individuals may be trying to, to add certain religious practices on. Now, again, these won't even make it up um, to the courts if the state or the prison systems accommodate or find ways to accommodate these religious requests, our right? Lupa, Through our LUPA, right. Yeah. And, and if they are able to, to work it out <laughs> amongst <laughs> themselves, right, uh, they won't ever really make it up mm. to the court. So, yeah. I do want to ask, um, considering the right to life um, claim we were talking about, the one thing that I seem to see as a difference, even though people are talking about the abortion debate in terms of cases like these, um, it seems as though it places an emphasis on like the punitive nature of our justice system. Because I can imagine someone who is um, 
very pro-life saying, well, those babies are innocent, right? And they want to say there should be like this punitive justice for someone who's committed some sort of moral wrong where the right, the right to death or the right to life, that becomes blurry for them because they do believe in this punitive nature of the justice system. They don't believe in rehabilitation. They don't want prisoners to, in this case for Ramirez or for other prisoners, find a faith practice be rehabilitated in the justice system. I think that that's part of the debate where you want to argue that a child is completely innocent and these people don't deserve that same level. I don't think I've seen people broach that because that's an that's a topic I often see come up when we're talking right to life. And I wonder if that would complicate, I guess, the the correlation or maybe just shed a light on, again, our punitive our punitive view of the justice system and what it should be doing in society. Right, right. And I think that, like, as you suggest, that might be a reason why a pro-life person, right, might also be mm-hmm. in favor of the death penalty. Um, yeah. And, and, and the, the, I think the logic would, yeah, I think the logic, the logic to that would be the, the, the child is innocent, but, uh, you know, the person convicted is, is, is not innocent. And then, you know, somehow is forfeited their yeah, right I mean, to life by their actions. People- you see these people on death row saying like, I'm not the same person I was 12 years ago. And to some extent yeah. that barely does ring true. Like 12 years is a long time, for example. And so you look back and I'm sure many prisoners could have this experience of saying, I don't recognize that person. It's been so long. Right. Yeah. Um, so that brings up the question of like some of what I've tried to do in the criminal law and mm-hmm. religion blog is just kind of explore just how close religion and particularly uh, the, the Christian tradition and in, in our Western context and our, our Western legal system, how, how close they really are in history and mm. how much overlap there's been yeah. um, throughout time. Um, and now as the two spheres of religion and state have argu- arguably separated more over time, mm. there's still this question of, um, you know, what, what role does redemption yeah forgiveness penance repentance um i guess even reformation or i think um you know in in a more secular term rehabilitation right but it may be in a religious way yeah uh uh, repentance redemption what what role does that play or should it play Mm. um in the criminal justice system and i think i think you're right i think you know on the one hand there are people who've committed, you know, horrendous, yeah. horrendous acts, um, or allegedly committed them, or have been convicted of them, and then you know the question is, can they be redeemed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for my my own tradition, um, I don't personally believe that there's anybody who's uh, beyond the point of, of some point you know, of, of redemption, mm-hmm. right? Some people may yeah. not choose it, but it's it's possible for all, no matter what they've done, and uh, a, you know, a quote by uh, Brian Stevenson, who's a uh, person who influenced me a lot, um, is um, a person basically, when I'm paraphrasing, shouldn't be defined by the worst thing they've ever done, right? Mm. You know, if, if that was the case for all of us, that would be a pretty <laughs> awful, right? Yeah. Because um, you and I and all of us may not have, um, you know, committed a horrendous crime, but we all have certainly done something or things that that um we're not proud of and do we want to be branded and defined by that forever 
Um, and I think <laughs> the answer is no. And is, is there a, is there some kind of place for, for mercy, some kind of place for redemption, um, for forgiveness? Mm-hmm. Um, I like to believe that there is. And when it, when it gets into how that interacts with the rule of law and justice and the state, it, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, um, a lot of ink has been spilled on, <laughs> uh, these intersections of religious conceptions of justice and, you know, more secular, um, or philosophical conceptions of justice and, and how they intersect. That's what I think so interesting about something like, uh, issues of criminal law and religion is it just brings up such a rich array of, of all of these different areas and, and ideas in our, in our culture and our history, um, and in our society. Right. And, um, I think that would be better off to look at our history, um, our tradition, um, I should say traditions, histories, in our context, uh, the United States more more Western, but also Eastern and, and otherwise, and to see what what kinds of good things we might be able to to bring to bear from those traditions on uh, onto our legal system to make it more just and um, to make it more conducive to to the common good, so to speak. That's part two of our two-part series, The Right to Death, with Peter Wozniak. Thank you for listening. Canopy Forum and the Interactions podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and produced by Anna Knudsen and Ethan Anthony. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook, follow Interactions on Instagram, and subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform.